How's it going, guys? Uh, you got the Middle Tech Podcast here. I'm Logan Jones, joined by Evan Knowles here at Awesome Inc. Crazy news just broke. Yeah. They well, uh, which which news? Like the NCAA or the Hawaiian flights? Well, both. We'll start <laughs> with the NCAA, though. So the NCAA tournament is being played without crowds. How bizarre is that? Yeah, I mean, for the teams that are the smaller teams, uh, this probably helps them out. And for the teams like Kentucky that yeah. have oh, great traveling fans, you know, that sucks. Make a bold prediction on how this is going to affect the tournament. I haven't followed college basketball at all this year, so I can't make a prediction at all. Hold on. I'll make one. I bet that an 11 seed makes it to the Elite Eight. I don't know who it's going to be, but I think that's a good point that you just brought up because the small schools are not going to be as affected by the big fan bases creating a bunch of hype and and making them nervous. So, yeah, I think it'll be crazy. But, yeah, that's just – so yeah, I mean, teams like Duke and yeah. North Carolina and UK, like they rely heavily on their fans. Yeah, wild stuff. Louisville, so freaking coronavirus, man. Yep. Uh, related to coronavirus, uh, I just got a text from one of my buddies that tickets to uh, Honolulu from Cincinnati are three hundred dollars. So the Middle Tech team is going <laughs> to Honolulu. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're gonna have to, man. We'll do an episode from Honolulu live update. Yes. <laughs> uh, be like Kanye going out there and making some some uh, fire podcasts. There you go. Yeah, actually, got to get our Kanye right? goes out there. No, it's uh, or is it Kid Cudi? It's one of my two favorite artists. You can roll with either of them, and yeah. our audience is going to believe way. us either way. So. Um, so we just got done recording with Charlie Miller last night, founder of Unitonomy, uh, very experienced entrepreneur in the product development space. Uh, he is now developing a product uh, that sits on top of Slack and Microsoft Teams, uh, with two or, which are two very quickly emerging platforms uh, for the tech space. Um, and he has a really amazing approach. So he's building a company that helps uh, businesses build their culture and keep better tabs and engagement with their employees. Um, and it's in the form of a chatbot that sits on top of those two platforms with analytics on the back end uh, and a lot of awesome management features. Yeah, so it's most beneficial to remote teams, which I think is yeah. super relevant, which is yeah. kind of why we're mentioning coronavirus because that was one of our topics of discussion is him trying yeah. to get this beta out to kind of capitalize on on this pandemic right now. Um, so yeah, just crazy time we're going through right now. And it's it, it was cool to hear him talk about how his product is going to help benefit teams that have to go remote as, as a yep. result of either this or just being spread out across the U.S. Yep. Um, so yeah, it was one of the things I will say throughout that interview. I've never seen you dig so deep into product on this episode, on as you did on this episode, I don't think. And it was really cool to watch you apply all your knowledge and research that you've done on this kind of stuff. This is, this is your forte. This is where you like to be. Yeah. I've been using Slack. I mean, for about four years now, um, four or five years. Um, I started when I was at Fuji and I was early in Slack's, uh, career Slack's business. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've just, I just followed like software. Like I study it. Yeah. Like uh, yeah. instead That's of college, I, mean. I studied software. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we dig yeah. pretty deep into this product cause I, I kind of, I understand it pretty well. Um, but for those of you listening, the big takeaways on this episode are going to be, um, you know, building building a product. He's very product focused, uh, yeah. and you know he's having to learn the other sides of business. And part of that is raising money. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has some great takeaways for entrepreneurs on how to raise money. He's a first time fundraiser, um, so he has some really great tips. Uh, one of them, was, which was amazing, that you really like as well, um, is build Trello, build a Trello um, board out of you know your fund. Uh, raising contacts. So, you know, if those those people you have met, those people you want to meet, and those people that you um, feel confident, so basically a CRM. Yeah. Uh, but 
It's really cool how I he does just, that. I think it just makes a lot of sense. Accountability, yeah. you know, being able to track that kind of stuff. Being able to put notes into it and everything yeah. like that. But yeah. that's a really tangible tip he gave, but there are many more. Um, so for those of you, you know, raising money, I think it's going to be an awesome episode. Absolutely. Let's get into it. Yep. start this episode the same way I have been uh, every other one. We were just laughing uh, at a funny little insider joke, but uh, hunches. You can't start every podcast or every video the same way, so I'm going to switch it up. We've got Charlie Miller here from Unitotomy. Hello. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. We're looking me. forward to this. You're building an awesome product that I've enjoyed keeping up with since just since I met you. You send these awesome updates. You guys are doing some really exciting stuff. I'm going to talk about that. So... Let's just jump into uh, your background. There's a lot of things we can talk about here. We're going to talk about all of those things, um, but let's just kind of start with the foundation. Where are you from? Education. Let's start there. Sure. Born in Saudi Arabia. Oh, wow. True story. Uh, wow. Grew up in Southern Kentucky, Dare County, um, <laughs> over yonder, and then moved up here when I was seven, so pretty young still, and grew up in Louisville, and uh, loved being a kid here. And did the classic boomerang thing where I left for college and was gone for a long time. I came back for a few years, early 2000s, uh, teaching here in town at the high school I went to, St. Francis, Little Love, um, helping with their journalism stuff, teaching the journalism class, and uh, doing some experimental video on the side. Uh, it was kind of my first passion. Uh, just messing around with these cameras. Just at the very beginning of the digital thing that was starting to happen, figuring out how to make my computer edit videos, which was extremely slow back in that day. <clears throat> but I was having a lot of fun. I could see two things happening at the same time, which is, hey, journalism is really starting to change with these blogs. All this video stuff and all these cameras are starting to change big time. I got to get ahead of this. And so I went up to New York for graduate school to learn about technology at NYU. And uh, at that graduate school, ITP, which is awesome. If you haven't heard of it, you should look it up. It's a great graduate school for any person of any sort of background to learn about technology. They pull people in across all kinds of divisions. But uh, I realized I had a game design um, background because uh, I've been doing that with my friends since I was a kid. And I applied that in graduate school and started making everything from mobile games to tabletop games and loved it. First job out of there was with a company called Cognito with a K. It was a little startup in New York where we were making conversation simulations, how to have a difficult conversation, mm. training people around that. It was like a video game. Mm. And you kind of play these decision trees of what do you say next in this situation. We did everything from sexual harassment uh, investigation trainings for like big hotel chains to uh, city of New York and teaching the police how to talk to people. And um, The big winner that they had uh, that I helped develop was something called At Risk that they're still selling. They built a huge company around it now. Uh, to teach professors in classrooms how to have a conversation with a student to convince that student who's showing maybe mental health issue signs to go get counseling. Um, so I learned a lot about not just how to have difficult conversations. I learned about the startup piece. and I got addicted. It was yeah. exciting to me. Uh, this was 2009. Uh, when I How moved, old were you? I was 30. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, 31. And I was like, all right, I got to try this for myself, the startup thing. So I left Cognito, and they were seven, and uh, 
started a website called givendate.com, my first startup in New York City, dating site that raised money for charity. Uh, so <clears throat> where would the money come in? Self-funded. Um, just got it off the ground. We were only focusing on New York. I got well, it. I mean, like, how, how did you incorporate charity into dating? Oh, gotcha. Like, so the business model, which yeah, yeah. didn't work after 19 months. So <laughs> big asterisk on that. Um, this is like my business school. Uh, a few things I want to tell you about Given Date. First of all, best tagline of any company ever. Save the world and find love before lunch. <laughs> the before lunch part really sells it. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I still got the uh, poster up in my office. That's awesome. Um, so we failed in a few different areas. One, uh, we wanted to make sure that when a user you know, saw someone they wanted to message on the site, that they could donate to that person's charity of choice. So if I want to talk to Sally over here, I would have to donate a minimum $3 to Sally's New York City charity of choice. We established partnerships with all these charities. Um, $1.50 went for us to cover our costs. The other $1.50 went to the charity. But the person donated $10, we still only took $1.50. All the rest of the money went to the charity. And because you knew Sally was going to see how much I donated, we raised a lot of money for charity. That's By the really time right. we closed down the website... 98% of the money that went through the site went to charity. That's insane. That's also why we didn't make awesome it. Story. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a cool right? thing to We say. tried. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we were way ahead of the curve for two reasons. One, we were the first dating site in the world that used OpenID. So when you sign up for the first time, we could take all of your information and just create a profile for you. Mm. And that freaked everyone out. Because mm. everyone thought, oh, my boyfriend on Facebook's going to see that I'm on this dating site. We're like, no, yeah. that's not how this works. This is before Facebook Connect and all that stuff. I was going to ask yeah. you where the data came from. They manually put it up. Uh, they didn't have to because with OpenID, oh. it was like an early system that could pull data from across the internet, kind of like Graviton. Oh, so it was crawling. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So it was really cool, but it freaked out. Oh, yeah. sure. The <laughs> other piece okay. was um, it took us nine months, and that was a lot of burn, working with Amazon to set up the donation system so a user could donate straight to the charity and the money never touched us. It was like a real donation. The charity would get the ID and the email, the person making the donation, establish a relationship for tax benefits. If you're donating enough, you could get the write-off. It was yeah. awesome. The charities loved it. Amazon thought it was amazing what we pulled off with their tech. Problem is, it just took too long to build it. Now you can you could build, rebuild, given date in like one day. It's all there off the shelf for me now. They have yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. But back then, it was a pain in the butt. And we ran, so we ran that was your first entrepreneurial yeah. venture. Um, but I wanted to back up because I'm sure they're tied together. The concept of building and programming video games and building virtual worlds has a tight knit, absolutely you know, conceptual, you know, conceptual and feeling of building something from scratch. How did you develop that as a child and you know continue on that thesis of mine that you know designing video games transitions well in entrepreneurship? Well, I tell you what, um, just I was an organizer in my neighborhood, um, and I don't know what it was, but I'd just be in the yard with my buddies, and like you could play the same old baseball or basketball, but I was always just coming up with new twists of games to do, and realize my friends really like that. And I realized really early that it's really cool to get the expression on these people's faces of them having pleasure of something you came up with, mm. right? But I never thought I could make money at that, right? Especially back in the 80s, right? It was like you know, games or something Hasbro made. And like they were like the, the only way you could become a game designer. When I first got out of college, I actually knocked on their door to see if I could get a job making board games for them and like get lost, kid. <laughs> <clears throat> well, continuing on my evolution after a given date, guess what I did? I got to start making games for Hasbro as a contractor. I ended up making several games for them with my partner. And everything from like um, my 3D 360, which is like this um, headset uh, where you put your iPhone 1 or 2 in, 
and uh, it was uh, parallax screens, 360 video. You could be in a spinning chair and spin around. This is way before Google Cardboard or anything yeah. like Oculus Rift or anything like this. Um, we made six games for it. It was awesome. Hasbro wanted $35 a kit, which we thought was a little pricey. We went with it and it was dead on arrival because it made everyone motion sick. It was mm. horrible. So that wasn't the best one. But the next one was we made something called Cyber Hoops where you play, probably played Nerf Hoops. Well, this is cool. You put your iPhone or your iPad on the other side of the room and record video while you're playing Nerf Hoops. And when a shot went in, a sonic tone, which was RIP, would be sent from that goal to the phone and say, preserve the last five seconds of video before the ball went in. Mm. So we could create highlight videos for all the kids. And it was awesome. Oh, How did it sweet. know the... The ball went through the hoop. Did you have something There's on There's a paddle in the back of the hoop. Ah, and when it okay. hit the paddle, obviously, the ball went through. Sonic Tone through there. That IP of the Sonic Tone was then applied to another startup coming out of the same little incubator my partner started called B-Muse as Edo Siegel. Um, that IP was put into a thermometer. Why would you do that? Well, you could, we realized you could put a thermometer into an iPhone headphone jack and send that same Sonic Tone through sound from the thermometer in through that headphone jack. The reason why that's great it's really cheap. That piece of equipment's really cheap, even compared to like developing around Bluetooth. It's faster, it's cheaper, it's great. That idea became a startup called Kinsa, which is still going. It's the first FDA-approved uh, hardware for your smartphone in the U.S. Um, and as we're talking in the age of the coronavirus and everyone's freaked out about flus and fevers, Kinza is killing it. They they create health maps based on where uh, fever's spreading, mm. and it's a it's a really neat uh, client of Perkins, that company. That's wow. a tangent, sorry. Um, but anyways, that goes back to your question about the overlap between games and something that can be totally non-game, like borrowing from games. I think Kins is a great example because here's something that's very serious, right? Public health. But it started with us making Nerf cyber hoops, right? Yeah, that's really There's cool. a translation. I, th I love that Snap Inc. has the mantra, we believe serious things starts with toys. And I totally believe that. Um, now, there's another lens of user experience that I've learned a lot about with games. So I started teaching at General Assembly on this very topic for a while. You may or may not have heard of General Assembly, but in New York, it was, a, it was kind of a big thing. It was the first place that kind of really did co-working. Uh, it was also a place that first started doing workshops. So anyone in the community could come in and learn about UX or product management, whatever it might be. I, I started teaching game design there pretty early and ran a workshop over and over. And it was, the idea is, don't come in here to learn how to make a board game. Come here to learn something about how games get designed and developed to take it back to your non-game product. I hate the idea of gamification for just the sake of gamification. I do yeah. believe in incentives and motivation, but I also believe in playfulness and making it fun and making sure the whole thing is meaningful. Mm -hmm. That's what really good game design does, and you can apply this almost anything in life, and it works. right? I have little kids. It works with them, but it also works with adults. And I think any product that gets made nowadays should have that lens of it doesn't have to have every incentive in the world or carrot hanging over it, but like at least make it kind of playful, kind of interesting, and lovable in a way that harkens back to toys and games. Yeah, makes sense. Um, to continue on with gaming before we get into some of your next ventures, um, you know that space is blown up right now. You got esports. What is your opinion on the space right now? Since you've been in it so long, where do you see yeah. this going? Something that's kind of hurting me right now. I have a big miss. Another kind of semi failure. I developed this game called Outbreaker. Back after, um, before the Hasbro stuff, uh, but after Given Date. And Outbreaker was like what we now know as Pokemon Go. It was Ooh. a location-based game about spreading viruses. That would be blowing up right now <laughs> if I finished it. And I, I got a good team. We had four of us working on it, and we put some good time into it. But again, we're just a little ahead of things. Like it was hard back then because not everything was built off the shelf for geolocation-based yeah. gaming. And we couldn't get any investor to, to give it a go because they're like, who would get off the couch to play a game? 
Oh man. Well, this, mm. you know, what, five years later, we see Pokemon Go explode. We're like, well, there's Streets your proof. filled with teenagers just walking around. <clears throat> yeah. Scenes. And now with the virus stuff, all these virus games are exploding. Um, anyways, so that's a little scab I just picked. Um, <laughs> so, uh, where were we going? Uh, so, video game space right now. Oh, video what game space. That's interesting to you. Um, I think we're still way ahead of where virtual reality is going to take us. I think as that gets cheaper, that'll get max adoption and it's going to be amazing. Um, I think AR has got a great feature, but again, it's expensive. It's awkward right now. We're going to see so app- any applications that, again, we start with the toys and the play stuff, and we'll get into places like this conference room soon where you're using AR in virtual environments. Um, so I'm bullish on all that stuff. and But I'm also really excited what's happening with board games. So my first love is board games. This is what I do on the side still as my hobbies, just make card games and board games. And... Because of Kickstarter, because of iPads, yeah, there's a renaissance right now of people designing all over the world, indie guys, indie girls, designing board games and card games that have a chance to shine now. You don't have to have Hasbro be the gatekeeper anymore to get something published. And it's amazing what we're seeing. Yeah. I want to you know, continue on something you said there because I'm wondering, I'm trying to follow it. Um, a couple questions. Uh, one, about Facebook and uh, their Oculus you know, acquisition that's been a while now. Uh, when do you see that coming to fruition or at least hitting the mass market? And what's going to be this, the, the trigger? Um, I can only give you a little antidote real quickly, which is to say um, I know people now talking about it literally this year that have never been in the space. They never thought playing these things. And I'm starting to hear chatter about, hey, have you tried this? And that's always to me a little bit of a tipping point in not people working in the industry or, or like gamers already are starting to take a look at this and try it. And part of that is like, you're starting to see these headsets in bars now where people just kind of for the first time do it mm-hmm. and be like, that's amazing. I want to get this at home. How much does this cost? Yeah. Now that you're starting to hear those conversations, it tells me we're getting to the next wave of this stuff. Cause I think in the, like in 2019, we kind of left the room like, uh Oh, this stuff isn't getting mass adopted like we thought it would. Um, everyone's sort of waiting to see what happens with magic leap and that's not looking too good. Um, so my hope is that we're about to get a second win across the space and in 2020-2021 we're taking another big big step forward yeah I'm going to plug my good friend uh, Dean Crockett who showed me some of the games that are out now on Oculus and um, he had the headset that didn't need an attachment to the computer and I think that's a big that's a big piece right because you don't need these expensive PCs Um, and it was just amazing to me uh, the the ability to just jump in those new worlds and I had forgotten the real world I was in and I thought yeah. that was because I had I had done VR I had done I've done Hololens I've done the um, HTC Hive um, I've done those at conferences but he introduced me to what is like you can do in your home yeah. and that was a big difference that was yeah. amazing um, the second thing I wanted to ask you about is what what the hell's going on with uh, Magic Leap. Huh. Uh, I have a friend who works there, so I don't want to say anything too critical, but I, I'm like everyone, which is like, er, two, they raised what two billion dollars before yeah, product. Yeah, um, I can I can't tell That's you. Yeah. I, I, all I can say is it's you know it's really neat stuff they're working on. It's just too expensive and it's not consumer kind of grade yet. And, I know they're trying to sell to businesses and stuff, but uh oh, that's what Google Glass did. So it's like, again, I think there's going to be a second wave on all kinds of stuff like Google Glass and Magic Leap and stuff, and it's going to be amazing. But I remember in the 90s at the State Fair here in Kentucky, going up to a booth where a guy told me for the first time, try a virtual reality. And it was this really clunky headset you put on, and it was these really thick polygons. But, you know, 10 year old Charlie was blown away. 
Yeah. I was like, oh, actually, I really need this and that. But I was like, I, I get it. This is going to be amazing someday. Now, I thought it was only a few years away that we'd have something like Oculus. And of course, now it's like 25 years later, and we're just now getting to the wireless thing with those mm-hmm. kind of graphics that doesn't make you motion sick. Yep. But these things never just happen overnight. We're always expecting like these overnight things where it's just magical. And you know, you've all seen the peaks and valley things that go across social yeah. media kind of explaining how industries go. And we're going to have another big wave here soon. It's going to be incredible. Well, what really confused me was the big investment from Amazon, uh, Google, Alibaba. So I thought that they saw something there that they wanted to either have insight into and have that transparency or they wanted to make a big investment and eventually acquire because they just saw something so amazing. And that founder, like, he's brilliant. Like, the, his past robotics company, like, he's a legit technologist. So I thought it's amazing technology. There. No one's going to argue with the technology. Yeah. Um, it's just not commercially. It's not. It's too expensive is what you said. The magic of a good demo can go a long way, especially the investors. But um, I think the price points are not consumer friendly yet Mm -hmm. for what you're getting. And that's just always a problem. Yeah. Going back to my point about the little piece on the the thermometer using the headphone jack. Like that's such a cheap piece. Something I did learn from Hasbro that was really valuable. They're always focused on the bomb, which is to say, how cheap is us? Is it for us to literally get one of these on a shelf? That thing's got to be less than a dollar. Like even the Nerf hoops, like that thing's for their whole production, that plastic and everything's got to be less than a dollar. That's how they make their margins. And so anytime you hear companies like a Magic Leap doing things, and you start to add up your head what the bomb's going to be, you realize, uh oh, you can't charge ninety nine dollars for that thing. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, we can get off that uh, that sidetrack <laughs> thing. Let's uh, let's talk about touch. Uh, you know, one of the next points is uh, one of your other ventures, uh, Touchcast. Yeah. Um, so talk about that. What sure. that was. Uh, sure. Learnings from that. So um, after the Hasbro stuff was uh, well going on, uh, my partner on that, Ito, showed me this crazy prototype he had for an um, interactive video tool. And it was on an iPad 2 and when the author threw in a website or a PDF while you're shooting video and recording that, when you eventually gave it to a viewer on another device, whether it was mouse base or a touchscreen, they could watch that video and scroll through the website inside the video. They could click on the links inside that website in the video. They could download the PDF. They could annotate. It was, it, it was the same experience for the viewer as it was the author. And that was amazing to me. It was a lean-in feeling of actually engaging with video and going back to my experimental video days I could see the potential of what this could do so I said hey let me turn this prototype into a real product leveraging the same team we're developing the Hasbro stuff with we built a really great team over in Ukraine uh, that I'm still largely engaging with people I work with all these years on my current work um, so that happened I was the first full-time person on TouchCast and uh, over seven and a half years while I was fully engaged that turned into a team of over 100 um, across seven different time zones, uh, all enterprise sale. We um, um, basically took a whole year from that prototype to redesign it and rethink what the user experience should be and uh, went to market in 2013 in June. And a week later, we were inside the BBC pitching the top heads on them using it. They were our first big customer. I spent a lot of time over there with them. They were using it for storytelling. Wall Street Journal started using it for storytelling. Globo down in Brazil started using it for online storytelling. We thought that was our business model. It was awesome. Well, within one year, we saw their budgets getting cut. And the writing was on the wall. We can't keep selling and getting the checks we're getting from these big groups. 
what are we going to do? Well, we're getting a lot of knocks on the door from companies, really big enterprise companies who've been seeing those BBC videos and seeing those Wall Street Journal videos saying, hey, you can give us the same amazing technology to use inside our companies for internal communications, presentations, et cetera, and give us the security and privacy we need around that, we'll pay you a lot of money. So we took a lot of time to kind of turn the ship in that direction, but we did, and that's still um, how TouchCast makes all its money. And our biggest customers are groups like Accenture and Unilever and a lot of big pharma and a lot of big banks. And basically what they do, it's, it's a lot of people use iPads, but now we do have tools for Windows and, and uh, Macs to make these video presentations where you kind of, just like a PowerPoint or whatever, you're putting stuff in your, your video slide and it can be interactive and all kinds of attachments. And you can build choose your own adventure if you want to, or they can be just very simple sort of annotation things real quickly of, hey, um, person I'm working with, just you know, change this on the website because you can annotate very quickly and send that off. <laughs> uh, we built um, over four years our own video conferencing tool that just came out, I believe, this winter. I, I advise TouchCast at this point. Uh, it's called Team Time. It's really cool. It's like video conferencing, but again, it's interactive. Mm. Uh, you screen share and people can take over and click on your screen too. It's really neat. Uh, but again, it's all enterprise grade tools. Um, so it's um, kind of a well kept secret. We made the problem at TouchCast where uh, we always thought if you just build an amazing product, people would come. Yep. And um, we gave it away to free to K-12 teachers here in the United States, and that was awesome because that became like our kind of beta crowd to always test new features with, um, and they really loved it. But uh, we didn't really build awareness well. So even at the enterprise sales level, it's just kind of relying on each other's Rolodexes to make those sales. And uh, it's something I've I learned from a lot. So I, in the last year, I'm a product guy. I've really tried to figure out marketing because I really didn't know much about it. And I realized for my next startup, I got to make sure I know something about building awareness and trying to make myself an expert on it. So now I have a lot of thoughts about that. I want to do that. Yeah. You can go into it if you want. But otherwise, yeah, TouchCast was a great experience because I learned so much about how to do things in the right way in terms of building a company. Um, everything from the product and tech team and how this thing's going to mature over time and, and how you hire and just how you build the team. <clears throat> but the seeds were planted for me uh, in my head of like, this missing thing in the world. And you know, we're working with all these big companies, doing enterprise sales for their internal communication, and I'm hearing all about their problems related to horizontal knowledge transfer and how it's so hard to collaborate when you have these big distributed teams. And I was looking at my own company and realizing, wow, we're scattered across seven different time zones. Why isn't there something I can just take off the shelf to make it easier for us how to, how to work as people with each other? How do we bond and belong with each other and develop those senses of accountability? And everything you would do if we were all in the same office standing in front of the same whiteboard talking about it, it's much harder when you're remote. We rely heavily on video conferencing and just having a lot of meetings. And then eventually we stood up Slack like a lot of companies do. And that kind of helped a little bit with the making things a little more transparent. But then we kind of realized, wow, we just opened Pandora's box and we had a ton of noise. Yeah. And it felt like I was spending all my time just trying to triage everything in terms of making sure communication is flowing to all the right people across the organization. I just kept thinking there's got to be a better way to cultivate our culture and really how we work with each other. I could look at the sales team and they had Salesforce and that made them a oil, oil machine. The product and tech team were over here using Jira and that's amazing. Customer support teams got Zendesk. These are these very flexible, awesome platforms that you can do everything you possibly need to make sure information flows well within that team. Yeah. With these fragmented tools, they don't talk to each other. And the only thing you have is all these people sitting on top of it to have meetings and meetings and meetings. And, and so that's kind of where the idea for my new startup was born, Unitonomy. I'm just trying to figure out how to make it easier for someone scaling and growing a company keep cohesion and how to cultivate that culture across all yeah. the people. I love that. And you're using Slack and 
soon teams. That's right. As platforms. Right. And I think that's really unique because throughout you know technology, people build platforms and then companies start building on top of those. Um, how early did you see Slack being a platform? And you know, because that's where you're built. Like you're you're just I, in that ecosystem. I was super impressed with Slack back when we started using a Touchcast, and I saw them announce their sort of their developer ecosystem. I saw their business model. They don't want to develop every detail inside no, their no. system. They want people to build on top of them. It's yeah. really smart. Then I saw them launch the Slack fund. And I was like, wow, these guys are geniuses. Uh, that's great because now they're going to really help people build on top of them. <clears throat> but I never thought I'd be building on top of them. I was yeah. just like an interesting thing they were doing. I was just impressed with that. Well, here I am now building on top of them. And I, and I it's funny, when I started doing autonomy, that wasn't my first instinct. My first instinct was I just got to make sure I know a lot about culture and make myself an expert of all the things you need to be doing in terms of cultivating the culture. And, and, and I was kind of backing into, well, what does this product really feel like? What does it look like? And I went out and got a lot of advice. And I talked to a VC named Alison Baum uh, out in uh, San Francisco. And she's great. She's really focused on the future of work and, and all things remote work. And she was like, you got to build on top of Slack for this. And, she, and I thought about that. And she, I was like, she's absolutely right. If you look at how people cultivate any sort of culture, 10,000 years ago, it was around the campfire. Why was that? Well, that's where everyone congregates to talk to each other. Mm. Well, in the office in the 20th century, where do you build culture? It's around the water cooler. That's where everyone congregates. Well, guess where everyone's congregating now? It's Slack and Microsoft Teams. I love that. And so, of course, that's where I want to be because that's where everyone's already talking. The trick is, again, with Slack and Microsoft Teams, there's no process. All I got to do is add a layer here of process to make those tools really valuable to make the conversations really meaningful. Problem solved. Wow. That... That's one of the best like connections. Just, That's so awesome. Just a way to describe your company. Yeah, Thank you. Uh, I, I, here's a little plug for something in mobile. So I really struggled with this story and this positioning <clears> because it was such a fluid product and me trying to wrap my head around how it's all going to work. And I have a great team, but we're, they're all kind of following my lead on trying to articulate what this is. I had a, I had a really hard problem. I knew in, inside me what this was going to be, but I couldn't find the right words to get someone else to completely understand it. I got mm -hmm. a lot of people scratching their heads for a while. So I got accepted into the uh, boat uh, accelerator type thing here in the world. Big fan of this community foundation manages it. $25,000 of non-diluted money to get you from an idea stage to a prototype stage. That's awesome. Snow community has something like that. It's yeah. amazing. <clears throat> I was lucky to be accepted in it. We had a great cohort. We really developed a lot of camaraderie around uh, just the people doing it, which was great. But uh, through their coaching and everything, I kept getting feedback week after week on our, my positioning and Britton Skinner helping me on this. Uh, we just kept tweaking it every week, pitching it a different way and getting your feedback. And like the rubber still wasn't hitting the road, but uh, I'm really thankful to have that experience because not only did it help us get the position, it kind of taught me how to be listening for it. Because one thing at TouchCast, I never did the investment side. I was doing the product side. Mm -hmm. You know, my partner, he was going out and doing it. He was really good at it. Um, and I had help with the demo every once in a while, but I was never like running the show and those things. Well, now I am. I'm the CEO. I got to be doing these conversations. So um, I'm really thankful for that experience because in January, we started our own fundraising. And I realized if you don't know how to tell your story quickly and concisely, you're dead. Yes, um, those are the two keys quickly. And, and it can't be formulaic. You've got to be able to make that emotional connection. Something I've learned about fundraising very quickly. It's so much like dating. It really is. It's relationship-based. You can't ever look like you're too eager, Right. You want to make sure that you're getting a warm introduction from someone who's a mutual friend, so there's a foundation of trust. But the other piece of it is, you know, you, you see all this advice online of what you need to have in your deck and what investors need to see, and it's, it's very logic-based. 
something I found is you can have all that stuff but still fail. What you really need is that emotional connection, and that's going to happen very quickly in those moments. Yeah. Uh, along those lines, you know, positioning and the story, the name, unitonomy, where did that come from? It's a mouthful. Um, unity plus autonomy. It's something I learned early on doing all my research, reading these white papers and books from people that know a lot more than me about how to cultivate culture in these organizations. <clears throat> if you just do two things well, but you do them really well, you're going to have a culture that people want to stay with. And that's build unity across the team, meaning people have a sense of purpose and they know how they belong to the organization, plus autonomy. People actually can set their own direction. Those are the two things that are crucial to a great culture. So I didn't even know what I was building, but I realized if we do those two things, we're going to help people. So boom, there's our name. Unitonomy.com was Great an available story. domain. Oh my gosh. We got it. Now, <clears throat> here's the problem. It is a mouthful. That's feedback I've gotten a few times. Well, we've always thought the perfect comp for what we're doing is Atlassian, which is great because there's another mouthful of like a $15 billion company or whatever yeah, they are now. It. You, you love so, Atlassian. I love them, yeah. yeah. I love them too. And they're the perfect model for us. And though, by the way, those founders are doing a ton of good in the world. That's something that's important to me too. Like I, if we can make this work, I'm definitely all about leveraging to do this other good things around the world for this. But back to Atlassian, right? So they are, uh, that's the mother brand Atlassian, but then they have Jira and Confluence. Trello. Those are kind of the two products they started yeah. with. They acquired Trello, which I love. One of our advisors is from Trello, Christopher Davis, who's a nice. uh, great guy. Um, I just connected with him on LinkedIn. I think he's he a, a product designer. Yes, yeah, he's yeah, awesome. Yeah. You guys should interview him. He's great. Yeah. Well, well, I knew early on. Look, this is going to be a model for us at last, so I need to make sure I can talk to someone there to give some guidance. Because not only do they make great products, they have a great culture, and they're almost fully remote. Charles is a team of two hundred remote people. Like that's wow. the kind of insight that I need for how we're constructing our tools. But anyways, um, as we went through vote and I was getting all that feedback on positioning, we realized we had a real problem. Too hard to explain. We're trying to, with Unitonomy, both make sure people have levers to pull to cultivate their culture and improve communication on top of Slack and Microsoft Teams. We're also trying to measure how the culture is performing and how people are performing as collaborators. That's not one product. As we did our customer discovery, we realized people want to start on opposite ends of this product experience. So why not break this up into two products? So these customers can start over here and this other segment of customers can start over there. We'd already built the conversation engine behind both these, so it's very easy for us to move these separately. So now we have two products. One is called Git Commit. This is the processes that sit on top of Slack and Microsoft Teams. And we have Org Vitals, which is our people analytics where we understand performance through the context of collaboration and understand how the culture is performing. HR teams and companies about 50 to 500 people really want to start with Org Vitals. Teams that are remote first, that are probably 20 to 60, 70 people, they want to start with Git Commit. The idea of Git Commit is very similar to what developers are already used to in the world. You've probably heard of GIT systems, Git systems. These are repositories where people um, work on the shared code bases and make sure they're not stepping on each other's toes and keeps everyone working and collaborating well. Well, we're metaphorically taking that and applying it to the rest of the organization through a GET Git system where you get a question and you commit an answer. And these questions are things related to developing a sense of belonging, your sense of purpose, bonding if you're a remote team and you're not having those water cooler conversations. A good example of that is something we have called the Friday process where... Um, or sorry, the Friday pause, where at 4 p.m. your local time, 2 p.m. your local time, you'll get a question that says, hey, Evan, um, take a picture of wherever you are. Tell us something you learned this week. Tell us something that didn't go right this week. Just that. You take 10, 20 minutes, add that. That sounds like, oh, it's a little kumbaya, but truth is, um, it's kind of fun. People start to get into it. And the best part, it's kind of 
getting you to have the conversations but actually develop the bonds inside the trenches that again if you're remote those things just aren't naturally happening because you're not bumping into each other in the office and it's important that those things do happen outside of the core work that are happening in video conferences and other things so it gives you a sense we're at the same time we have alignment systems that are like a lightweight okr piece to help people just make sure they're projecting what are they doing and why are they doing it everybody always has so much trouble you know adopting and actually implementing and executing okrs I think that it just makes sense that this might be, this is probably one of the ways to we, fix that. We leverage OKRs at TouchCast, um, which is our own homegrown system. I looked at these really deep, expensive systems out there like Lattice and realized, ah, it's just too much. Like, we don't have the bandwidth to manage yet another system. Well, it's another channel. Yeah, exactly. It's another place you have to manage. And no one has time to sit down to do, like, all these reviews of all the things. And it's like, you know what? Just do it wherever This it is. isn't about project management. This is about really lightweight communication. Just telegraph to the rest of the company your general focus for this week, one or two things, and then map that back to a team objective or your own personal objective. We already know what goals to the company they map to. And we, can very, we can visualize for everyone in the company, every individual kind of generally, what are they focused on this week? How does it map, map to company goals? And on the vice versa, we can show you every company goal and generally where everyone's applying their effort right now. Yeah. Again, this isn't project management. This is just OKRs for the sake of communication. And the best part about this is it manages itself. No manager has to sit on top of this whipping it saying hey everyone fill out your okrs yeah, yeah. So. it's a it's a one minute exercise and it just works um you know we've been talking about kind of the idea and the conceptual side of this but let's talk about like the product and actually how you interface with it and how it works um when i looked into it is it fair to call it a chat bot within slack and teams or is that not fair that's totally fair okay um the reason why in our own messaging we, we avoid the word bot is because I think a lot of people hear it's bot and they think it's, well, it's inhuman, but it also just like usually does. Like we're so used to just one thing bots, like, you know, what time, what time is it? And the bot tells you what time it is, but obviously they do more things, whether it's like a scrum master, little things like this, but they're very lightweight and mm-hmm. they kind of feel like um, throwaway sort of um, stopgap measures to just kind of get information from. Well. Uh, we see our more like a virtual colleague, which is we want you to um, almost imagine like you've hired a new person to the team and that new person's job is to help cultivate collaboration and improve communication. And so all they're doing is like uh, uh, that transfer helper. This is kind of the faux name we've given it. It's there to just make sure information is flowing between people. I love Zapier and that like has solved getting information now to start to flow between those fragmented systems. Yeah. So we kind of see ourselves as doing something similar between people. Um, so the, yeah, that's, we sit on, we're kind of like middleware. We sit on top of Slack, sit on top of Microsoft Teams. We have our own interface. It's a dashboard where we capture the most important information and, and store it. So you can always go and see it whenever you need to and find it whenever you need to. And then we'll also know when to notify and tap people on the shoulder when it's something is really important related to their team member or something, a decision that got made in the organization or what have you to clue in people. Um, so that's generally what it is. We are in uh, a private beta starting March 26 uh, because of uh, COVID-19. We're going to rush this out the door for a public beta with it kind of underbaked, realizing there's an opportunity to help people figure out remote work. Um, a little bit of opportunist for us, but the truth is, I'm worried about remote work kind of getting slapped in the face. A lot of people are going to try it for the first time right now. Yeah. And if they have a bad experience with it, there's going to be blowback on remote work for sure. as a cultural shift. And I really do think remote work is going to play a large part in the future of work. So I just want to make sure people have a really good experience with it because and they realize the valuableness of letting someone have some work flexibility. If you look at millennials, the number one thing they want in any job is flexibility. Yeah. And I think it's important that we play a role in getting people to realize that all right, you tried Slack and Microsoft Teams for a few months as you just got you know, forced to work remotely because of the virus. 
uh, I think it was sometime around May, June, people were going to start to have that sort of pushback, like, I'm ready to get back to the office. This isn't fun. I Slack and Teams are a nightmare. It's so much noise. Um, I think that's where Git Commit can come in to help make it a more pleasurable and, and frankly, hopefully a better experience, more valuable experience. You mentioned the back end to this, the analytics, you know, the insights. Um, I'm sure a big part of your pitch is like monitoring engagement of employees. And if the engagement's low with a certain person, that's a flag to talk to them. Is that part of the, is that part of it as well? Yeah, I'm glad you're asking this. So that's our other product org vitals. Okay. And um, yes, it does, you know, uh, keep a sense on how the culture is performing. And it certainly looks at performance in the context of collaboration, but I think it's a really important point is uh, I'm big on ethics and we did a lot of AI and ML at my last company and I just want to make sure it's, in all of our messaging it's very clear that we do not eavesdrop. I think data privacy is huge for all companies out there and they don't want us listening to every email, every Slack message, every Microsoft Teams message. So back to the virtual colleague metaphor, we only listen to your answers after we ask you a question. We say, all right, we mm -hmm. ask you ABC and you respond XYZ. We are only taking XYZ into our system. We're not going to eavesdrop on you two talking to each other. Is, uh, is Alexa doing that? Is Alexa eavesdropping? <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of startups in this people analytics world that are doing sentiment analysis by eavesdropping across all your conversations in Slack or Teams. And that's the reason you can't do this. A, sure, data privacy is important to these companies. But two, there's bias. When you're doing machine learning, someone built all that machine learning with someone's assumptions. And that's how you get bias in these systems. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it time and again with, with innovative startups just not even thinking about this. And they just kind of go without asking questions, thinking, oh, this is going to be amazing. We can see all these patterns in the data and it will just work. And, you know, you don't need HR asking questions anymore. And it's just like, oh, man, a bunch yeah. of white dudes just designed another thing. They don't <laughs> understand that it only yeah. applies to other white dudes in the same social demographic as themselves. Uh, so we have our eyes wide open of making sure that we try to keep as much bias out of the system as possible. It's not entirely possible to keep it all out, but um, document what we know and how we work and be transparent about that. But two, don't perform sentiment analysis where we're not invited. That's yeah. just fraught with issues. So totally. That's a heads up on that. So we don't do that. Uh, the way that we see ourselves working is like a consultant. These big enterprise companies, this is going to blow your mind, they spend about $2,000 per year per employee on consultants and running workshops on all things improving culture and improving communication. That's a huge amount of money. I want a piece of that. Yeah. Uh, so what I do is I look at what are these consultants doing when they own those companies? And of that, what of those trainings and those workshops can actually be turned into software of some sort? And some of that's get commit, but a lot of this is org vitals of just sort of asking questions and knowing what to document so that you can see over time how things are trending in terms of performance and are things improving here. Do people feel better about it? You asked about employee engagement. That's absolutely one of the core things we, we look at. We've licensed IP out of the University of Louisville here. Dr. Brad Chuck is an expert who's figured out how to ask the fewest amount of questions possible to nail someone's sense of their own employee engagement. A lot of competitors ask 80, 90 questions, which feels like homework to employees. Yeah. These surveys once a year. And Brad's figured out how to do it in four to 12 questions. It's amazing. You get the same results. So I've licensed that IP, and Brad is working with me on developing that to extend across the employee experience, which means taking to places no one else is really taking it. How do employees feel connected to their other peers? Do they feel stressed? What's their, how do they feel about their work capacity? Are they overworked? Are they underworked? These are things that are really important, especially for millennials. They really want to be appreciated by management, how hard they work, how they feel about things. And... I think connected is huge in the context of remote work. Again, like you, you might have someone who understands their purpose and has a deep sense of belonging to the organization, 
but they're not feeling connected to their peers, it's a really big problem. Um, one question related to that is, you know, how do you take politics out of it? Because it's like, if I've got this virtual assistant talking to me and I might not want to say something because <clears throat> I know somebody on the other end, a manager might be say, seeing this, are you anonymizing it at all? How are you dealing with maybe the fact that somebody might be scared to say something? That's a really good and a really tough question. Yeah. And I don't have a definitive answer for you yet, but I, going back to my game days, I absolutely know players will game systems. If they see a way to help themselves and around kind of the whatever it might be, they don't want to get bad marks or something, um, they will certainly take that path. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a believer, though, if you're honest and upfront and transparent with people, you say, here's why we're asking these questions. Yeah. It's not to get anyone fired. It's to make sure you get a better experience. It's not the tools problems. It's the management's way that they implement mm -hmm. them. If you don't answer this honestly, management won't know what to improve or how to improve. Yeah, you got it. Um, I love the quote uh, that one of my advisors, Martin Lowe, here in town gave me of on-plane consulting, which is, I think, said a lot in his space of consultants helping on the HR side of things. People join companies and they leave bad managers. I mean, that's got to be so true. I, I mean, I wish I could say to the audience right now, raise your hand if you've ever had a bad manager. I think if you live long enough, you'll absolutely have a, a, a manager at one point that's just like, did anyone give this person any training? Yeah. You know, uh, and that's actually a part of the problem. Managers usually don't get training. They just get thrown into the deep end. Well, um, so org vitals, yeah, we're going to be really upfront with people so they understand why they're answering these questions and realize that this data is meant to make it a better experience for them and not get anyone in trouble. So you're going to have to train people on the product. Um, are you guys anticipating you're going to need to train the teams on just like that concept you just mentioned, like transparency, honesty, the way to manage mm -hmm. I, utilizing these tools? Because mm -hmm. like if, if, if they're bad managers to begin with, if they've got bad processes, putting this on top of it not, is not necessarily going to improve the business, right? That's, you know, bad processes are bad processes whether you put technology on them or not. How are you viewing that part? Uh, another tough question. So you can't magically make a bad manager a good manager, yeah. right? right? Yeah. Um, but I think it was G.I. Joe who said it, knowing is half the battle. Um, we can certainly open some eyes to understanding things that anyone with really good soft skills would already know. Someone who has really good emotional intelligence would perceive very quickly. The best managers have high emotional intelligence. They can read someone's body language. They can understand how they're feeling. They know how to ask the right follow-up questions or really dig in when someone's not telling them everything. That, to us, is like the roadmap. Looking at the best consultants and feeling like, all right, if we can kind of do that for them, ask the right questions for them, and then present this data to them, hopefully they're starting to have some aha moments. Of like, oh, I didn't know Jimmy was feeling bad about this and burning out. Maybe I can reorient him now. Yeah. So again, time will tell. This is why we're going to be running for Org Vitals, a very long private beta, so that we can get a lot of good feedback. What's working, what's not working? What do these teams really need to know more about in context of our analytics? Which things are people gaming that we should avoid? Now, um, the game designer in me absolutely knows that like uh, we can't give anyone data in one day. One of the things that work vitals is it's going to take time to build up. Our cadence is asking one or two questions a day with people um, and getting that sentiment over time, watching how things kind of trend. So it's a very slow cadence. So we've developed this like we develop a game, which is to understand the player experience for the average employee is this like 90-day game. And we got to make sure on every day, if we're going to give them some you know, medicines and these homework-feeling questions, you got to balance it with some of the more playfulness and kind of keep that balance going almost all the time so they're not ever kind of doing the lean away thing, but it's like just enough to kind of keep them coming back. There is some gamification. 
pieces where uh, you, based on how fast you go, you can accrue some points. We're adding another thing in that's, I think, going to be neat where after you kind of answer your question, you can toss it hot potato style to your, the next person you want to send it to. And based on how fast they answer, you get a kickback on points. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit of a way of like betting on uh, your colleagues, which is kind of fun. Um, and then we want to wrap that all up at the end of the quarter, kind of showing the tops of the leaderboards and having a bit of a lottery to win some things like uh, partnering with other startups where maybe it's like um, uh, professional development books and getting access to, to digital reading, things like that. But not, yeah. not just like Starbucks cards or anything. Like that. Yeah, I thought the answer to your question that I just asked was great because it's like give them the insights to change in the first place. You know, right. if like you, you said it, like a bad Thank manager is not going to be a bad manager. But when you give them a, the transparency and you give them the aha moment with the data, it's like, oh, well, maybe I'm starting to be self-aware. Exactly. Yeah, self-awareness is the answer. end of the game. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Awesome. Uh, well, you said it much faster than me, so thank you. <laughs> um, Slack versus Teams. Uh, as a person that loves to invest in public companies, Slack's relatively new to the market. Uh, there's a lot of worry about you know Teams is coming up and grabbing up all the enterprises. Uh, what are you seeing given you're like right there in the trenches with those two companies? It's uh, pretty 50-50. I think uh, in February, Teams just took over market share barely. And you're right. Teams is really grabbing that enterprise, those bigger companies, because they're already on the Microsoft stack. So, of course, you're going to fall into the Teams. Um, Slack, much smaller companies, um, much typically demographically younger people. Um, I'll tell you this. The companies we talk to that are using Teams they have a bit of a problem, which is to say a lot of those people are still using email for internal communication, whereas another, the younger people in the company are, are now using Teams. And there's this sort of internal fight of trying to get all the old timers over to Teams so they have one place and not two places because that, that, that creates a whole other set of issues. Um, and uh, by the way, I think we're unique to, to tackle that, but I won't go into our product because we can play an email too. Um, I think that's going to be an ongoing problem for Teams. Slack, uh, I think they really know what they do well, and they, I think they're going to be really good on just kind of continuing to build that love. And I've heard a little bit that they've plateaued, but I also then heard they won IBM as a big client. That's a nice big flag on the ground. Oh, yeah, so it's a huge enterprise. Yeah. So um, we'll see where this goes, but you know the writing was on the wall for us early on. This is going to be 50-50 and probably 50-50 for a long time, so we've got to be ready to develop for both. We finished our Slack integration. We're still working on the Teams one, but we should be wrapped up with that hopefully by mid to late. Yeah, that's insight on Teams that I think is great. Um, and over time, you'd think that if Slack's starting with these smaller, younger companies, they're going to grow. So the market share will grow organically with them. And their revenue model is really unique too because uh, you know I've heard that a large percentage of their users aren't paying still. Right? Are you seeing that? Are you I know Slack has a lot of just sort of homegrown communities that borrow it, and that's great for them because I'm sure they're just getting a ton of usage, and that's a good thing in general. But, um, you know, I think Slack has a healthy business model. The fact that companies like me are building on top of them, they're going to have long-term success. I'm not worried about them. I'm impressed with Microsoft. You talk about investing in public companies. I do own some stock in Microsoft, and I luckily got it right when Satya was coming on. That's awesome. You know what? Uh, that whole company has changed their culture, so kudos to them. That's amazing. So there was one point in time no one thought Microsoft culture could change, and they did. That's amazing for a company that big. It's really amazing. Two, they know largely the future of the office suite starts with Teams. Like Teams is going to be the backbone of the whole company, and the reason why they rushed so hard to make Teams, they saw what was happening. Slack was taking over the water cooler. Yeah. And if they lose that, if Outlook loses that, they're in trouble. 
And so kudos to them to getting where they're getting it. Um, I know they work closely with Accenture on that, and I've seen it come a long way. I think team still has a lot to do, um, but then again, Slack still has a lot to do. I mean, ultimately, both these tools need something like Git Commit. And I, and look, if Git Commit doesn't solve this, unit time doesn't solve it, someone's going to solve it. Someone's going to solve this layer on top of these systems and provide oh, right. a process and help people organize. Better. And to continue with the remote you know, work, applic- these, these platforms, um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on Zoom. Um, Zoom came along. They're doing amazing. I, I love Zoom. I use Zoom on several, within several companies that I work on. And we use, we've been start using, we've started using a little bit of Zoom. Um, and I love it. Uh, where do you see that? It's similar to Slack. It's like, yeah. you know, it's this platform. Yep. A lot of people are, are getting introduced to Zoom for the first time right now. Again, thanks to coronavirus and everything, unfortunately. Um, I'm a big fan of Zoom too. Um, I learned at TouchCast as we were developing video tools for many, many years. You can add every bill and whistle you want to that experience, but you have to start with quality of service. The audio feed and the video feed have to just work. It's got to be in sync always. And mm-hmm. you got to know how to degrade it so if the bandwidth goes down, you can yeah. keep up and don't ever let the audio fail. You want the video starting to fail. Like, there's all these things. And like, well, we studied Zoom a lot because, man, they are very smart about how they degrade in quality. And, and, and you realize. You went to investors 10 years ago and said, hey, I'm going to develop a new video conference. And they would look at you like, you're crazy. Yeah. That's solved. You know, you don't. Well, look at what happened with Zoom. They came out of nowhere, and now they are winning the space. It's because they do quality service so well. Truth is, Zoom is still terrible for whiteboarding, annotating. Um, you heard of Miro? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you use Miro? I've tried it, yep. Yeah. Um, like it? You said you tried it, so I guess you... I've tried, but I like, again, like, you guys got to go try TouchCast. Uh, I know it's enterprise, yeah, okay. so you can get access, but like, we have some amazing tools that no one's heard of, and it's like Team Time blows Miro out of the water. Team Time blows, um, what's the one, Loom out of the water. But, you know, Loom had a better business model, frankly. They're going bottom-up sales just like I'm doing here in Tommy or Slack's doing where anyone can start free and just a few people start using it and it starts to spread across the organization. Great. Well... We're doing t- enterprise at TouchCast, and you know TouchCast I think has maybe twelve or thirteen customers. That doesn't sound like much, but except they're these huge enterprises, and it takes up all of our bandwidth to serve those companies. Well, uh, unfortunately, we didn't build awareness by doing it that way. But go try if you want to get you. Where I see um, so good, you know, Zoom going in the future, and they're starting to do it. But I think this is their next big leg of growth. Is they're taking existing existing platforms that um, need more communication tools. Um, particularly with video, and they're integrated into those, like they did a great integration Slack. Um, I've read that the healthcare space is beginning to adopt Zoom, so like this whole telehealth movement, it's like um, instantly get connected with somebody through video that's a doctor, and Zoom's powering it. So it's like um, you know, this telehealth experience powered by Zoom. I think yeah. that's their next, rather that's, than just own the, yeah. their experience, they're integrated into other experiences, but powered by Zoom. Well, uh, you'd be smart to invest in them because of what's about to happen. Again, not to harp on the, the, the pandemic, but everyone's going to be going to video conferencing right now. And everyone's going to start to realize, oh, once you kind of get used to it, this is actually pretty effective. And I don't feel that isolated. I'm talking to people all the time. I'm, it's a, I, I work out of my basement, and people always kept asking me, don't you feel isolated? And I was like, no, I'm talking to people constantly all day long. Like I, I have more conversations than probably most people do in an office when you're sitting in a cubicle. Yeah. Um, I, I love Zoom, and I do think video conferencing is largely the future for, for any knowledge worker. Yeah, so we've gotten to dive into kind of the product and, and how it's going to, it sounds like revolutionize the way remote work is done. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Um, when we talked on the phone, when we first kind of initially met for the first time, you talked about some of your major learnings and something we're trying to do 
uh, in season three is kind of give the audience something to take away. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you mentioned was it was your first time raising money and some of the experiences you had. Dive into that a little bit and talk about what yeah, you Yeah, so first time fundraiser. There's a huge learning curve as any entrepreneur goes through of how to raise money. And um, you know, I'm also doing it in Louisville, Kentucky, which isn't known for a very easy right. place to raise. Right, right. with one of the top dogs. <laughs> John is one of the best. Yeah. I love John yeah. Loma. Um, he's just a good guy, right? Um, but like his fund doesn't do pre-revenue state investing. Mm-hmm. Not many do here. Uh, when I arrived on the scene, I moved back four and a half years ago. Like, um, you know, I started asking around pre-revenue investing. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Like, that, who, who would, what fool would ever make that kind of bet? Um, I've been delightfully surprised. There are people here that do pre-revenue investing. They just don't advertise it. You kind of got to dig. And I've been pulling this thread and that thread and kind of seeing where one conversation takes me and one relationship takes me to another. And sure enough, there actually are a lot of people here. It's just not sort of an organized thing with people running websites saying, come talk to me about your next idea. We're running a fund for pre-revenue, pre-seed investment here. That's changing. Render capital, you know, awesome. You know, that's, uh, I think, a nice little sign. Um, and I and I think there's I, I'm hearing talk of maybe some more funds in this region starting up for for pre revenue investing. That's awesome. We're we're in a nice spot between Indianapolis, Nashville, and Cincinnati. Hopefully those things kind of converge and influence this place. But long story short, what I've learned is that it's as hard as everyone says it is. Uh, you've got to be willing to jump in cars and airplanes and go talk to people, get face to face time. Absolutely. Um, you've got to drink a lot of coffee because you're gonna have a lot of coffee meetings. Or focus. Mm-hmm. Or focus with a P. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, it's all about relationship building. People got to trust you. They got to believe in your passion and your energy that yes. you're really onto something. And also, they can look at your background and say, "Hey, this guy knows how to do something." Or this girl, whoever you might be. Um, and I've just learned that uh, it, it takes up as much time as any piece of building a startup. And uh, being a product person, where my comfort spot is just to be knees, heads down, and product with my team, I realize I can't do that. Like as a CEO now, I really got to be able to put a lot of time toward all things investment. And sometimes that doesn't feel like that's fruitful time because you're just talking to people. Mm-hmm. And on the product side, yeah. you see tangible results of building all the time. And I get this weird anxiety. If I can't feel my hands in it, we're actually building and making progress, I feel really stressed that like, are we making progress? Um and with investment, you just there's nothing like that you can see. So what I did is I set up some pipelines for myself on Trello boards. I have one for VCs and I have one for angel investors. I'm planting a lot of seed right now, not seed money, but just seed ideas with VCs knowing that in about a year, I want to raise a seed round. So I've been getting on airplanes in New York and San Francisco and, and talking to people even in Chicago and around that I know, you know, through one degree of separation, saying, hey, doing this thing and just want you to know about it and start talking about it I get video conferences and sometimes I meet people in person simultaneously you know trying to pull all those things of finding the angel investors in this whole region who does yeah. do pre-revenue investing who do I need to be talking to and um, the great thing about it is it's like I've met a lot of really nice a lot of smart people and again there are opportunities here you just got to work at it and, and form the relationships and dig mm-hmm. I mean, yeah at the end of the day business is relationships and just to tie what you're saying into kind of my own experience through doing this podcast specifically all the people we've gotten to meet through this podcast has literally led to my next opportunity career-wise and i think that's that ties in perfectly to your next opportunity investment wise and i love that you're going out and just planting those seeds and having those conversations and saying you know on down the road this is what's going to be kind of going on with me 
I think that's a terrific, a terrific thing. I think what you just mentioned, the tangible piece somebody can take away from that, like the example is like you use Trello, like you're tracking it. You know, it's not just about saying it. Yeah. That's how I got my sense of progress. Yeah, the stuff is just a waste of conversation. Done. Talk, 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 pitch, 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 yeah. pitch. But really feeling like I'm actually moving this stuff along. Mm. And I don't know, maybe it sounds a little icky to have like a relationship manager like this for this sort of thing. But I think it's for an entrepreneur, it's essential actually that you are tracking things, that you, you're also following through. You make notes in the card saying, if I told someone I'm going to do something, you better follow up and do Absolutely. it. Because that's how they're building their sense of trust you, that you have yeah. follow through. Yep. Sure. And I need reminders. I'm 41 with two little kids. I forget everything. So I, I'm really good at tracking every detail. It's something I've learned from product management. And uh, it works out well for yeah. Super important. Trello is great for that. Yeah. Um, okay. So we're going to transition into where we always typically end the episodes, which is let's bring this in local and talk about the community. So you're starting a company here in Louisville. Um, and we always like to ask, you know, pros and cons that you've experienced so far. So let's start with the good uh, pros that you've seen starting a company in Louisville. Uh, I mentioned we got vote here, VOGT. Everyone should apply to vote $25,000 non-deliver plus coaching. That's awesome. That's something most communities don't have. We've got first build. It's like what? $20 million worth of equipment that anyone who's doing anything hardware related could go in and access. It's the best kept secret in this entire region. It's insane that we have access to that and it's free for people to go in and, and play with the tools. Um, so look, there's some like amazing things like that. And then you look at the other maker spaces, you look at the people here that are building things, you look at the people who work here remotely for big tech startups all around the world, you realize there's a lot of people who know how to get things done. There's a lot of nice, smart people here. There's a lot of people willing to meet with you and give you a hand up. So the basis is here for a great tech ecosystem. One of the big drawbacks is we don't have a school turning out a lot of computer scientists. Um, so to compensate for that, we I think really should as a community be leaning more into remote work and finding more people that can help software companies especially get off the ground and move fast where maybe your whole team isn't here. My team's in Ukraine. I've developed that relationship over 12 years and I wish more people would realize that you can do that well if you know how to get the right people involved. Um, and not just think that you have to find every piece of your team here in this community. Um, what else do we have going on here? University of Lola has a ton of IP coming out that any founder could leverage if they wanted to. That's already been field tested and it works. I was an entrepreneur residence last year at University of Lola, and I want to make sure every founder here realizes that there is a catalog of IP sitting over there just waiting for a startup founder to come and take and turn into a company, and UofL will support you and help you find investment because they know all things about the federal non-dilutive money that comes through a lot of this stuff. Uh, they'll help find business partnerships. It's a great team working in the commercialization department. Um, so there's another great resource that's kind of a too well-kept secret, unfortunately. Um, what else is going on in the scene? I was in New York City in 2006 when also New York City was like totally disorienting and disjointed startup scene. And then all of a sudden it started to happen. And it was starting to happen in funny enough, Dumbo, Brooklyn, and I was there for that, and it reminds me of where Louisville is now, which, you know, we're a lot smaller in New York, so it's going to happen more slow here, but, like, the thing that's in common is there's just a lot of nice, smart people there, and everyone was helping everyone, and you had this resource over there and that resource over there. Why don't we put these two things together and see what happens? That's starting to happen here in Louisville now, and I'm really excited. I'm really bullish on it, and I think the next decade is going to be awesome to be here and see companies that grow up here and then, you know, you create hopefully some other people with some money that can now invest again in the next wave of startups Fly because well. they get pre-revenue thing. Exactly. It's going to be really neat to be part of that. And um, uh, I've heard from people that I'm friends with on the coast who, who look at me like, there's no way you're going to build a meaningful company in the world. 
and that's for me is motivation. I love oh, yeah. the interview you guys did <laughs> with uh, Go Wild and, and Brad Luttrell. And, you know, that guy feeds off being an underdog. I'm the same way. Yeah, it's something about being from Kentucky where you just love sure. it when people sure. discount you and they don't yeah. think you can do it. Yeah. Um, cons. So what have you seen that could use some improvement? Uh, in Louisville, um, I would say I wish more people were putting their hands up to um, you know do the pre-revenue investment thing. So it, was, it made that investment thing a little faster and a little easier for people like me. Um, but uh, I'm really excited to hear what Access Ventures is doing with Lindor Capital. Cause part of it is, yeah, you want to create a great um, opportunities for money pre-revenue, but the other piece is like making sure it's inclusive, like making sure the whole community has an opportunity to jump on this stuff and get things going. Cause good, great ideas come from everywhere. So they certainly know that part of the game. I love what Leap's trying to do with the inclusive piece uh, with Techstars backing. So I'm hoping that over the course of time, Louisville as part of the brand for the ecosystem here is actually known as being a great place where anyone can build a startup because we're getting over that inclusivity. Yeah. And one thing that all of our guests have said, and they just keep putting it up over and over, is like the community is so willing, and you mm -hmm. said it, to help each other out. You know, it's like you saw us, somebody, one of our team members reached out on Twitter. You're like, I'm in. And like, it was like, it was like two weeks ago. Yeah. Well, here we are. Um, we have never been turned down from somebody we asked to be a guest. Uh, entrepreneurs, when they reach out for advisors or for advice, it happens. You know, it's Kentucky has that. It's fantastic you guys do this for everyone. It's great to have a platform where I can come and talk and ramble for a little while and hopefully a few people check out Unitomy. So thank you all for, for putting this on, for putting on as long as you all have. But, yeah, totally. Uh, it's going to take a thousand waves for the, this whole ecosystem here to turn that ship toward what we all consider success. And I think what that will look like is when we're no longer having conversations about what's working and what's not working. It just works. <laughs>